Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, the Biden's address. The Biden. We're going to be talking about Biden's address to the joint session of Congress, the threat of a military coup in France, and the increasing role that regional powers are playing in, well, their regions. All of that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news. So, the Czech parliament is considering levying treason charges against its prime minister over involvement in, uh, over the involvement, I should say, of Russian spies in a munitions depot explosion that happened, I believe, in 2014. Um, and I'm, I guess he was in charge at the time. And, well... No one likes foreign operatives being in your country blowing things up. So there's some increased tensions there. Then, while we're on the topic of Russia, we have the first Sputnik V vaccines being delivered to the unofficial Russian republics of Abkhazia and probably South Ossetia, not too far behind. And I'd imagine Donetsk and Luhansk and Armenia and Azerbaijan, all... The whole family of unofficial Russian republics. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. They're going to be getting the vaccine, as we expected. Uh, increasing Russia's uh, presence and their hold over these regions through non-coercive methods. So, that's always good. Well, good for the people who live there that they're not being shot at, and good for the Russians that they have control over these regions. It's a win-win in the Russian book. Why don't you want to take orders from Moscow? Afterwards, we have, uh, in more serious news, we have 30 people that have been killed in a village. It, this is a major. This is a major conflict. Well, relatively speaking, yeah, major conflict. Uh, in Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso. It's a country in Africa, just north of Ghana. It's squashed between Ghana, Mali, and Niger. And recently, they've been in a border skirmish, and just. Last week, 30 people were killed in a, well, a border clash with local Niger-based Islamist militants um, that the country has kind of been fighting for years now, especially with the rise of the Islamic State. But now you have, with the fall of the Islamic State and the relative absence of groups like Al-Qaeda, you have local groups around the world and you can really see this in Africa we're starting to notice that these Islamists and these Islamist militant groups are really trying to assert themselves 
and we can see that they're more than willing to get violent to do that and it's becoming a really big problem for countries in these regions uh, especially because the fighting just doesn't seem to end not really and no major power seems willing to step in with the exception of France uh, America's there kind of maybe uh, half-heartedly we have bases in Africa, but it's really the French who are really going at it, and even then, only to the degree that you were or weren't a former colony of France, or proximate to a former colony of France. So, that really just limits French influence to, what, West Africa? Uh, everything east of that is... Uh, fair game for I guess but it's while it is sad to see it's an interesting thing that we started to take note of over these past couple of weeks so we'll definitely be on the lookout for more things like this popping up particularly in Africa but maybe not just in Africa who knows although it's likely to be in Africa Next up, we have an American, and we have American and South Korean diplomats have meeting in London, and they have reaffirmed the U.S.-South Korean alliance during said meeting in London. Now, I've gone on my isolationist tangent multiple times, so we're just gonna we're just gonna gloss over this and gloss over the bad position that puts us in. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the Taliban and Afghani government have basically resumed fighting. Uh, who could have seen that coming? It is what day is today? Oh, uh, at the time of me recording this, it is May 3rd. May 3rd. And for those who don't know, our troops were supposed to be gone on May 1st, but now they're not. And that's a breach of the deal. And now, just like I said, two days later, what did I say? What did I say? Two days later, and now they're fighting again. Well, we have yet to see if whether or not they start shooting at American troops. But I'd imagine the second they do, we're going to see this weird, twisted response from the current government. The current U.S. government, I should say. Where we suddenly have to stay in the region. And this is the fault of trying to pull out. Without a proper exit strategy. Oh, don't you love that one? I am not a genius, folks. But I could see that coming from 15 million miles away. So, we'll, we'll see how this devolves from this point forward. We're only two days in after we were supposed to be gone. I'd imagine it's only going to get worse. Unless somehow they get the Taliban to come back to the table. And find a way to get the Taliban to trust that they're not going to go back on their word again. So, we'll see where we are in September 1st, when we're the new pulling out deadline. Uh, no explanation as to why it needed to be September 1st, and not May, but uh, I guess if we're leaving, I guess if we're leaving. Meanwhile, the Somalian Prime Minister... Uh, has been unanimously stripped 
of his two-year term expansion, uh, a two-year extension onto his term. He's been stripped of it by the parliament. There we go. Uh, and this largely stems over him uh, exercising restraint in the civil war going on in Ethiopia. So, yeah, he's... <laughs> He can't, he doesn't get to be president anymore because he chose peace. He didn't choose violence, so now he's gone. Or at least he will be. He's not gone yet. So, I guess perhaps that's kind of going to be maybe another thing we look out for in the future. Because we talk, when we talk about peace and conflict, um... And I get we. What am I, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say, we kind of overlook the importance that public opinion has, in terms of pro-war mentality. We always look at public opinion when it's against war, but we never really appreciate what happens when public opinion is pro-war. And I guess the best example I have of that is World War One, when everybody was like, "We're gonna go, we're gonna go screw those people over. It's gonna be quick. We're gonna be home by Christmas. It's gonna be glorious. We're, it's gonna go down in the history books. We're gonna get all this land. We're gonna get all these reparations for the war, and put those other people in their place." So, in a situation like that. If the government had exercised restraint back in 1914, we may have avoided a tragedy that, in avoiding that one, we could have avoided the Second World War too. but the public opinion wasn't there. Public opinion was pro-war. So, now here, we have another leader, in the modern day though, exercising restraint, only to be punished by his electorate. So... What then happens when, in the modern day, as we see these tensions rising between America, China, Russia, and everyone else America doesn't like, against the United States, and a lackluster response from most of its allies, uh, up to and including the ones that we're currently reaffirming our alliance with, what happens when, in any of these countries, maybe even in America. I think America's a pretty, uh, a war-weary country, so I'm not entirely sure it'll come from us, but it could. But let's just say that in one of these countries, you have a populace that is more pro-war than there are against. And their leader exercises restraint and they get booted out of office. What happens then? He gets replaced with somebody who's more pro-war and you get a you get a crisis on your hands. So, I guess that's kind of like a dangerous thing we can be on the lookout for while we're being on the lookout for literally everything on this podcast. But a very interesting thing to note out of this smaller country involved in one of the conflicts we've been covering pretty pretty regularly on the podcast but it really seeing these things really makes you think what would happen if it were a major power that were to do these things 
if a major power were to fall into civil war and if another major power had their leader booted out of office for exercising restraint in not getting involved in their neighbor's civil war. And we'll be talking about civil war with a certain country towards the end of the episode, so stay tuned. But, I'll digress, as now we get to move on to the EU before we get to the meat. I almost skipped them over. Uh, the EU has unveiled their new industrial strategy plan, which aims to reduce their dependency on foreign sources of raw materials and basic inputs, such as, I'd imagine, rare earth elements, uh chips and semiconductors and the reason i say rare earth is because well that's the raw material you need for most uh what smartphone type interfaces touch screens uh advanced computing kind of need raw not raw you need rare earth for that now i'm sure if they looked hard enough they could probably find some rare earth somewhere in europe I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I could probably look up a map, but <laughs> but they could. I know America does have its own rare earth deposit somewhere in California that's just been idled because of the costs due to regulation. So, in theory, we could become self-sufficient in raw earth elements as well, uh, almost overnight, if we really wanted to. But for the time being, it's kind of a Chinese game where they're making fat deals with the Afghans. And the Afghans are saying, hey, if you want to sell us what you got, we got these rare earth elements hidden away in the mountains. And then the Chinese come along with a Belt and Road Initiative and they build a road. They build a road through those mountains. And suddenly they can extract the rare earth even better. Hmm. Mm, I'm just saying. But, yeah, the EU wants to reduce its dependency on things like this. And I guess it's part of the larger backlash towards globalization caused by the entire world going into lockdown, which has caused economic ramifications that we probably will be talking about for years to come. And I say specifically the lockdowns, because, well, it is. The go there are governments around the world who chose not to lock down, even though we all had the vi this virus circling around. They didn't have these problems that countries who did lock down do. So that's why I make the distinction, uh, specifically with regards to the economy and the relative power of nations on this short-term scale due to the lockdown. So, the EU wants to reduce dependency. That's going to take a while. It's technically possible. I'd imagine if the EU tried hard enough, they could do it. Probably. Don't don't quote me. I don't. Oh, we're going to we're going to we're going to leave that on a hopeful note due to all the not so hopeful predictions I've made about the EU in the past. But maybe this could be a good thing for them if they succeed. And we're going to leave it on that hopeful note. 
But now we get into the meat of this episode. And what we have, uh, last week we talked about Vladimir Putin's um, a State of the Nation address. And kind of what he outlined he wanted for Russia. And now, interestingly enough, a week later, we have Biden doing the same thing with the State of the Union. Um, was it called the State of the Union? I, I, I'm not entirely sure if it was actually called the State of the Union, but it was a speech to the Joint Session of Congress. So we're gonna we're gonna go with the State of the Union. Uh, so on his hundredth day in office. Biden gave a long-awaited speech to, again, the Joint Session of Congress. Now, I say long-awaited because there was a growing stink being made about the absence of such an address. Um, But now we have it, and we can talk about it. So, in his address, he, first of all, touted the American Rescue Plan, which was one of the first things he got passed in what week one two or three in the first month of him being in office the american rescue plan which was a major stimulus package and the first to be passed under the biden administration with more supposedly on the way especially with these other plans he has proposed in this speech alone he expressed his positive and optimistic feelings towards the 1.3 million jobs that were created within the first quarter of his first year in office. Now, I'll say this is largely due to the country reopening rather than new jobs, but it's still great figures to have nonetheless. The lower your unemployment rate, uh, the better. In most cases, anyway. Won't get into specifics there. But 1.3 million jobs that have been regained, for the most part, is still really good, because that means 1.3 million people who aren't without a job and aren't staring down the abyss of poverty. So that's really good. He celebrated the availability and the accessibility of COVID vaccines in America, followed by a call to action for Americans to get vaccinated. Now, I won't. For reasons that are not Biden-related, I just won't, but hey, you can, and if everybody who gets it, if everybody who wants it gets it, and everybody who doesn't want it doesn't want it, well, the people who are afraid will be immune, and the people who don't care, well, they can't hurt you. So, that's the way I see it. So, uh, and actually, that makes the process of getting to the point where they say we'll get back to normal quicker, because about half the country doesn't want the vaccine. So, hey, that's only 150 million you need to produce if it was the if it was the what was it? The Johnson Johnson which was the one shot, but they took that one away over what they what did they say? Blood clot issues. So now we're stuck with the two jabs and rumors of a potential third jab you need. So we're we, I'll be on, I don't know, I don't know, what is that, 450 million shots? Okay, I'd imagine they just added an extra percent or two of people who aren't going to take the vaccine just because of that, but good things regardless of the availability and the accessibility of the vaccine for people who want it, and it's all about choice. 
After that, Biden talked about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour as he stressed the importance of government investment in things such as science or infrastructure. He named the the Interstate Highway Act, he named the space program, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if he brought up the Manhattan Project. I don't, I don't think he did, but I guess that would be a pretty good example of government in, uh, investment, too. You know, but regardless, and he is right on those, although I would argue well, the freer the market, the better. But this is not about me. This is about him. And so these are the things he wants to do. He wants $15 an hour to be the federal minimum wage, and he wants more government investment in science and infrastructure. Uh, he used these statements on the government's role in people's lives to promote his American Jobs Plan, a plan intended to create jobs by modernizing America's infrastructure, uh, namely around, namely centered around clean and green energy. Um, so this focused on modernizing the energy grid, modernizing the education system, and modernizing America's industrial plant. Uh, and he, in his address, he emphasized the growing competition between the U.S. and China. And he made it a point that solar panels could be made in Pittsburgh and not in Shanghai. So, and I would agree. I would wholeheartedly agree on that I don't see why our manufacturing base had to go overseas in the first place and so I'm down with that I don't know if what he's proposing is going to get it uh, get us those jobs back but we'll, only time will tell yeah, only time will tell and we hope for the best so he used those statements. All right. Yeah. And again, he in his statement he addressed the growing competition between the U.S. and China. He also stressed the importance of college education, which he was using to promote the American Families Plan, uh, which emphasized universal preschool and investment in historically black colleges, as well as low-cost child care. So, daycare for families, and a tax credit for having children. So, kind of what Putin did in his speech, where Putin addressed the declining fertility rates. Not specifically, but he mentioned he wanted a sustainably growing population by 2030. So, I guess what we have here is kind of Biden's answer to that within his speech. And we'll have to see if it works. Uh, same with the Russians. But again, it is kind of a good thing to see because you don't want a perpetually aging demographic. Although I would argue America is probably the safest right now. We have the youngest demography in the developed world so doing this at our point in the game would keep us ahead demographically speaking really so good to see this good to see this very much 
uh, moving forward, Biden also wanted to find a way to get tax money from the rich. Or, yes, he wanted to find a way to get the rich to pay more taxes uh, to pay for all of this. Why is it? Well, that, that's why I'm confused. My notes put a half in there. It, my notes read to get money from the rich to half pay for all this. Uh, and, uh, that's why I was so confused. I wrote weird things in my notes. But uh, I'll just stress that in this attempt to get the rich to pay for this, uh, I'll just I'll say it now. They ain't paying. So the money printer has to go. Brrr. That's what's going to happen. And we'll have to see if uh, we'll have to see just how strong this whole petrodollar is because it's looking like inflation is on the horizon. I'm almost prepared. And by that, I mean, I, I'm trying. I'm trying. But yeah, the, I don't I don't think he's going to be able to squeeze a dime out of the rich. Namely because the rich have means of finding ways around taxes. So then the taxes just get offloaded onto people who aren't rich, and it's a broken promise. Now, at this point in the game, I'll just stress that I'm down 100% with a 0% tax rate across the board. Everybody pays 0 and we all donate what we want to the government, and, well, the government has to be a lot smaller... And if it doesn't do what we want, well, they, they don't get funded. Now, that is my utopian vision. Very, very different. But hey, if everybody's paying 0%, then technically the rich already are paying their fair share. So I'll just, I'll just leave that there. Uh, Biden also promised to maintain a strong military presence in the Indo-Pacific region whilst promoting to bring American troops home from Afghanistan. Four months later, uh, then they were already supposed to leave, but okay, I'll take it. So, I obviously have issues with that line. I don't want us anywhere near the Indo-Pacific. I see that as a powder keg, uh, similarly to how the Balkans was and still is a powder keg in Europe. I see bad things on the horizon in that region of the world, and I want us to have nothing to do with it. I don't even want us to be in the line of sight for the people with the guns who are going to be shooting at each other. Don't want to be anywhere near that mess, but apparently we are now. Or at least we're going to stay a part of it. But uh, he wants Congress to draft legislation to restrict ghost guns. Uh, which, if you don't know what ghost guns are, they're essentially a kit where you have the individual pieces of the firearm, and if you purchase it, you have to manually reassemble the firearm afterwards. Um, so, he wants to ban those because technically those are a very easy loophole to most gun legislation because you're not purchasing a gun, you're purchasing all of the constituent pieces of a gun, but it's not together, so you can't call it a gun. Oh. You gotta love people. <laughs> but anyway, so that's uh, some of the major takeaways I got from his speech. 
very, it was, yeah, it was a pretty good speech, I'll say. He did, he, you could tell he was doing his best to reach out to the American people, uh, even if he didn't get to about half of them, you know, a good, uh, what, what was it, 70, 75 million of <laughs> Yeah, but it was a good speech. I may disagree with some of the things in it, but it was a good speech. And he did talk about some important things, namely bringing back manufacturing. And, well, bringing back manufacturing and the demographics issue. So there's that. Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, to rate it, I'm not going to rate it. I, I didn't rate Putin's speech. I'm not going to, I don't know. I don't feel the need. Oh well. Oh, that is what it is. And we'll we'll just have to see what happens moving forwards. Because you never know. You never know. Things can change and what he said could maybe not be what he meant. Or maybe the things he wanted to do get bogged down by things he didn't take into account. And the same can happen with Russia, although uh, Putin kind of was more vague on what he wanted to do. Um, he left, and what I mean by that is he left more room for interpretation on it as far as that went. So he could probably succeed better at achieving the goals he outlined because of their vagueness. So there's kind of like a differential between the two if I if there was the need to make one so we'll have to see we'll have to see all right though we're gonna we're gonna talk about these regional powers yes yes we're gonna talk about regional powers I for some reason I was reading over the wrong notes even though I knew what I needed to see but uh, yes, in just a moment. All right. Now we're going to talk about regional powers taking the lead. Uh, yes. Actually, you know, you know what? No, no, no. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the regional powers later. We're going to talk about, <laughs> we're going to talk about France. You know, I've avoided France a, a little bit after talking about them for three weeks in a row way way back when I first started the podcast but now we have some really really big news coming out of France and we'll get into it so 20 retired French generals 100 senior officers and over a thousand soldiers many of whom being active duty in the French military signed an open letter calling for the military to overthrow the government if the government did not address the issue of Muslim communities in France. And I mean Muslims as in, uh, yeah, what, Islamist militants? There we go. So... Islamist militant factions within Muslim communities in France. The military is threatening to overthrow the government if the government does not act to stop this 
Islamo-militant action and activity in France that has been really causing chaos for the country for years now, but really ratcheting up in the past few. Now, I'll go over uh, this letter, and we'll talk about some of the key points of it, too. So, without further ado, it reads, <clears throat> The hour is serious. France is in danger. Several mortal dangers threaten it. We, who even in retirement, remain soldiers of France, cannot, in the current circumstances, remain indifferent to the fate of our beautiful country. The letter talked about the symbolism of the French flag, stating, On these flags we find in gold letters the words, Honor and Fatherland. However, today our honor lies in the denunciation of the disintegration which strikes our homeland. Discrimination, which through a certain anti-racism is displayed with a single goal, to create on our soil a malaise, even a hatred between the communities. Today, some speak of racialism, indigenism, and decolonial theories. But through these terms, it is the racial war that these hateful and fanatic supporters want. They despise our country, its traditions, its culture, and want to see it dissolve by taking away its past and its history. Thus they attack, through statues, ancient military and civilian glories by analyzing words that are centuries old. Discrimination, which with Islam and the suburban hordes, lead to the detachment of multiple plots of the nation to transform them into territories subject to dogmas contrary to our constitution. However, each Frenchman, whatever his belief or his non-belief, is everywhere at home in France. There cannot and must not exist any city, any district, where the laws of the Republic do not apply. Discrimination, because hatred takes precedence over fraternity during demonstrations where the power uses the police as an auxiliary agent and scapegoat in the face of the French people in yellow vests expressing their despair while this while infiltrated and hooded individuals ransack businesses and threaten these same police forces. However, the latter only applied the directives, sometimes contradictory, given by you, the rulers. Perils are mounting. Violence is increasing day by day. Who would have predicted ten years ago that a professor would one day be beheaded when he left college? However, we, servants of the nation, who have always been ready to put our skin at the end of our engagement, as required by our military state, cannot be in front of such acts of the passive spectators. They, uh, now, when they 
refer to a teacher being beheaded, they're of course referring to Samuel Paddy, the teacher who was beheaded last year, which sparked this current wave of backlash towards Islam in France. Um, so, there's that. The letter continues. Also, those who lead our country must imperatively find the courage necessary to eradicate these dangers. To do this, it is often sufficient to apply existing laws without weakness. Um, without weakness... There we go. Do not forget that, like us, a large majority of our fellow citizens are overwhelmed by your dabbling and guilty silences. As Cardinal Mercier, primate of Belgium, said, When prudence is everywhere, courage is nowhere. So, ladies and gentlemen, enough stalling. The situation is serious. Work is enormous. Do not waste time and know that we are ready to support policies which will take into consideration the safeguard of the nation. On the other hand, and here's where things get really interesting, on the other hand, if nothing is done, laxity will continue to spread inexorably in society, ultimately causing an explosion and the intervention of our active comrades in a perilous mission of protecting our civilizational values and safeguarding our compatriots on the national territory. As we can see, it is no longer the time to procrastinate. Otherwise, tomorrow, civil war will put an end to this growing chaos and deaths for which you will be responsible, and he's referring to President Macron of France, deaths for which you will be responsible will number in the thousands. Wow. Just wow. This is huge. This is unmistakably a call to arms to defend France and its history from divisive forces within the country. Those forces, the ones that they name at least, being anti-racism, uh, instigating race wars, Islamists establishing enclaves in France and forcing different laws and different enforcement of those laws within the regions that they inhabit. And on top of that, in the opinion of the letter's signatories, a non-courageous government that refuses to enforce the law equally upon the other two groups. So, I guess you can, you can say that technically they are, they could be right when you look at the law. When you say just enforce the law, that could be the pro, that, that's the pro uh, coup argument. <laughs> That's the pro-military argument. Just enforce the law. Uh, the other side of this argument is they're threatening a coup. They need to be fired and or sacked. So, I don't imagine this is going over too well. At least not for now. I, 
I don't I don't imagine militant Islam is gonna make the call to action from this letter seem any more radical uh, than it may seem at first sight. As a matter of fact, I'd imagine that as people see the instigation of race wars and the instigation of de facto separatism by majority Muslim communities, they'll probably rally around this letter. They could. They really could. Uh, we, we've seen the shift already just over the course of the last couple months, which makes this so huge is that it's not that far off the mark from the general sentiment in France. And depending... And we can't really know exactly where that general sentiment is, because as far as we know, these military officers and soldiers who signed this letter could have hit the nail with the hammer. We don't know. We'll have to see. They could have... They could have... <laughs> they could have hit the nail uh, into a very bad place as well. We really don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, especially since it's pretty recent. Um, so, yes. Now, in response to this, the French president... President? What in God's name? In response to this, French President Emmanuel Macron and the other members of government who don't want to be overthrown by the military have promised harsh crackdowns on military officials who've signed on to this letter and punishment and or removal of soldiers who did the soldiers who signed the letter too because there was over a thousand of them so they've gone the repression route um although i'd imagine they're gonna take heed because they were already cracking down on islam before they'll take heed but i'm it'll, it'll remain to be seen just how 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 far they'll go um specifically because their political base of macron may or may not be down with going any farther than he's already gone and what does he do then it if he can't do enough because the people who would vote for him aren't down with what he's doing already let alone doing more it opens the door marine le pen is currently just barely above him in a couple polls for the french presidency she's above him now uh, they're they're really tied they're both within the margin of error of one another but there are a number of polls putting her above him and as we get close we're in may now so technically the french election year is only about what a week or two away from beginning in earnest so with something like this popping up uh, right before the election year begins, uh, it's gonna, I'd imagine it's gonna make this, uh, election a whole lot more, what, how do I say this? I'd imagine it's gonna make the impending election that much more heated, uh, 
than it already was gearing up to be. Because Le Pen has already been accused of being far right. Oh, So you can imagine that considering where she stands, and I'll make it clear that she stands with the side of the military on this. So she's on their side with this. And that's where her base is. And by that, by that, I mean her base says they're not doing enough about Islamic groups in France. So this is right up her political alley, and she can waft support off of this, um, depending on how well the call to arms, call to action uh, by the military goes with the French people in general. If it goes well, she could get a massive boost in the polls, at least temporarily. If it doesn't go well, well, she's put her weight behind this and she could have just screwed herself out of an election, at least temporarily. Because remember, they have like a whole year to go before they get to the actual election itself. So there is time to recover. A year, as I've been told, is an eternity in politics. So... What happens here can set trends in the short to midterm, but can be recovered from before the election itself. But elections aside, this is a very, still a very, very interesting story. Because it's not, it's not every day you get the military signing an open letter saying, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to overthrow you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna intervene. On, on, on your behalf, we're going to intervene and maybe put you off to the side somewhere. It's not every day you get that. I mean, even me, even Burma didn't get that courtesy call. They, they just woke up and the military was there one day. And the, the person who won the election and was accused of election fraud was in jail. Who knows? Maybe that'll happen to America, too. Maybe. Just maybe. But, um, uh, yes, it's a very odd, interesting, and scary thing to think about. When, you know, when you actually dive into what they've proposed, uh, I mean, imagine if, I'd imagine if you're a Muslim in France, you, this is the absolute last thing you want to be seeing get sent to your government, an open letter calling for something to be done about you is, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa there, bucko, let's, uh, let's not get too hasty, <laughs> is what I'd imagine the entire French Muslim community is saying right about now, let's, let's, let's not get too crazy now, we, we ain't with them, <laughs> but yeah, it, this situation does raise, though, an interesting question for us to speculate on, two that I can think of, really, um, well, three, okay, okay, I can count people, and the first being, what would happen if the military did take control in France, like what happened in Burma? Also, what would happen in the event that France actually did descend into civil war? And, if the military junta, if the military took control of France, uh... What would happen to them diplomatically? How would they be viewed? 
And these are some pretty interesting things to speculate on. Uh, and I guess we'll just start with what would happen if the military took control of France, like what happened in Burma. Well, there would immediately, immediately be very, very strong callbacks to certain boyo named Napoleon and how he took power uh, through a coup. Uh, a military coup that overthrew the government established after the revolution and he established and uh, the empire so he went from a republic to an empire when he overthrew that government and he crowned himself you could see something like this happen again although i don't imagine that france is going to go on a war path again unless something else were to happen outside of France, because it's not, France doesn't exist in a vacuum here. France exists in Europe, surrounded by a whole bunch of other, relatively speaking, strong countries. Um, if the military took control of France, France would undoubtedly be diplomatically isolated during the reign of this military junta, uh, similar to how Burma has been treated ever since the military took over there. So, that that's probably number one. So, they'll be immediately out of friends, kind of. Uh, I'd imagine Russia and China will make moves to kind of s take advantage of that sudden shift in the geopolitics. As everybody and their mama is shunning France, uh, the French military for taking control of the country, you could see Russia and China just step into the gap like they keep doing and say, hey, we're not hostile towards you. Why don't you uh, be friends with us? Look at all those people over there. You thought they were your friends, but look at how they're acting now when you're doing what you think is best for your country. And that's how they'll put it. That's how they put it, and they it, they could win over the junta. You know, France has consistently tried to reach out to Russia, um, but things block that from happening. If France was put in a position like this, where they could be potentially isolated diplomatically, well, then they get to join the club of diplomatically isolated nations like Ch not China, like Russia. Like Iran. Hmm. Very, very interesting. So that's the first thing I would see happening. And the second thing, uh, what would happen if France actually did descend into civil war? Well, if they went into civil war, I imagine that a civil war would undoubtedly go very very badly for france obviously but not kind of like in the way that we would imagine civil war but rather it would see foreign entities intervene into the affairs of the broken country and quickly causing the situation to devolve into something more akin to syria than the france we know today or the france we associate as being france and I mean the France from the past that we associate with being the France of today. Because 
And again, if they fall into civil war, that would really accelerate callbacks to the Napoleonic era. Because France, after the revolutionaries took control, fell into civil war too. It was the Republicans versus the Loyalists, the people who were loyal to the crown. And they were in a civil war at the same time that they were at war with all of their neighbors. Although they didn't intend for that, they just wanted to go to war with the Habsburgs. Ended up being at war with all their neighbors simultaneously. So what would happen here? Probably not a repeat of that. Although I'd imagine that whoever took control of the government of France, if it was the military who ultimately won out in that struggle, they'd be very unappreciative of everybody who had a hand in undermining France. And they would probably go on a war path. And we could see a repeat of Napoleon, but with modern weaponry, who knows? I don't imagine it would be as stunning and spectacular of victories. Um, The French military isn't exactly super-duper reformed, but it is powerful, and it is one of the better armies in Europe right now. So, that could be something to look out for, because... Again, this the the threat of civil war. I don't think the military would even be using words like that if they weren't genuinely concerned that the situation pointed to that being a possibility. So we can take that into account. And given the nature of the anti-racist crowd and the Islamic militants within France, it could easily devolve into a civil war just through the means of those two groups alone, let alone political opposition, the general political opposition. So France, I guess this is kind of like a wake-up call, that France is in a way more precarious situation than even those of us who've been watching France have kind of appreciated. And by appreciated, I mean look on with horror in our eyes at just how bad things are gotten in France. You know? I mean, we've been covering France for some... a a decent number of weeks now. But I didn't think it was that bad. (laughs) I, I didn't think it was that bad, but I guess it is. I guess if the military is going out of their way to warn the government that they... if you keep this up, we're gonna have to intervene then whatever you feel about that, that just goes to show how bad things are getting in France. So, there's that. And so, it's pretty, pretty bleak, you know, pretty bleak. Interesting, but bleak. Maybe there's, maybe there's a bright side and that would be a more unified and cohesive France. Um, I would imagine uh, if Britain Britain would intervene, it would be a rehash of the Napoleonic Wars. And, you know, from the other side of the ocean, that would be very fun to watch until you realize you have American troops in this country um, just scattered throughout it. Uh, maybe that would be an excuse to leave. Well, not with not with Biden in office on that.
And that's an excuse to stay. Now we have now we have to reassert democracy. You know? But uh, yeah. It could be put down very quickly by the US or it could startle the US into leaving. Uh, and depending on how that went, it would prolong the conflict. And either way, there'd be backlash at home, although I'd imagine there'd be more backlash if the Biden administration put our troops into this conflict that we really didn't need to be a part of. So, you have more war on top of old war. I don't think it would go over well here in America. And I, again, believe countries like China and Russia would walk in. Not They wouldn't have to fight. They would just step in and fill the gap from France's sudden lack of friends. Germany wouldn't be their friend. Britain wouldn't be their friend. Spain wouldn't be their friend. They're, all their neighbors would just cut off relations. Particularly the EU. I don't think the EU would recognize the military as the rightful government of France. So they would basically lose their status within the institution that they created. The French created the EU back when it was just the what is it? The iron, this iron and coal community, steel and coal community, something, something along those lines. France would overnight lose all their influence in this supranational institution that they created to counterbalance countries like Germany, and Germany would have effectively total control. There would be the outsized influence. There would be no more counterbalance to Germany within the EU itself. That would be a massive shift. And I'd imagine... I'd imagine the French wouldn't appreciate that. The French, who want to remain part of the EU, that is, they wouldn't appreciate that. Although some would probably see the sudden lack of... the sudden de facto lack of membership as uh, relieving. We really don't know. I mean, we know that France's president, Macron, said that if France held a, a referendum... When Britain did, France would have voted to leave. Who's to say sentiments are stronger now? Who's to say that those sentiments are weaker now? We don't know. No, no one's asked the question. But this whole situation is very interesting to look at. Very, very interesting. And so, yes, I'll leave that there. And we'll talk now for a little bit about regional powers taking the lead in their regions. Uh, it's a small update, but I wanted to talk about it because we have Germany, France, and Spain who have agreed to on their to meet to agree on a joint strike fighter design. Uh, these three together, I would argue, hold more sway than the EU does within the EU's territory. Um, so they're getting together for joint strike fighter designs. And it kind of reminded me that, hey, regional powers are taking things into their own hands. And they need a, they all need a new fighter design, so they're going to come together in their region to make this design. You have on top of that, you have Turkey. I was watching the Duran the other day. They're a really good geopolitical channel to watch if you're interested. The Duran... They were talking about uh, the talks with, over the status of Cyprus. And we 
they talked about how Turkey was pushing for a two-state solution in the Cyprus dispute. And to those who don't know, a couple decades ago, Turkey invaded the island of Cyprus, uh, took basically half the island, and established a puppet government called the Republic of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Now, from the decades following, the official stance has been that they want the federation. They want a single state system, but it has to be a federation where both sides get to govern themselves largely, and then they come together with one voice on the wider world stage. That was the official position. Now... We have Turkey and Northern Cyprus pushing for a two-state solution where Northern Cyprus gets de facto independence. Well, not de facto, literal independence, and for that independence to be recognized. Uh, Alex and Alexander, they're both Alex, they both brought up the parallels between this situation and the Ukraine and the radically different responses that Western powers have had to it. The harsh response in Ukraine and the rather lax, uh, almost appeasement-style response over Cyprus. And what we have there is Turkey exercising influence successfully, I would argue. The, no one's taking back northern Cyprus for Cyprus, and no one seems to be willing to want to. Turkey's exercising influence successfully in Cyprus. And if they were to get control of Cyprus, even just de facto control of Cyprus, that extends the range of their navy really good within the Eastern Med. And that's really just what they need since they're focused on control of the Eastern Med. If Turkey has Cyprus, they control the Eastern Med. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Because they have the Syrian government on their side. Um, they have that joint mutual exclusive economic zone. They're going to be pushing. They're going to be pushing for this. And I'd imagine that as they continue to succeed on this front, they're going to notice, hey, this is actually more important than we thought it was. So they're going to be pushing here. They're getting stronger in their region. You see... Countries like China making moves against Taiwan. Taiwan can't really do much, but they're trying their damnedest. You have, yeah, you have fucking, you have Russia moving their troops around their borders to kind of send messages to the Ukraine. Say, hey, you're putting your troops on the border with these breaker republics. Here's a reminder that we can do the same. If you get too close, we recognize their independence, and if you invade them, well, the ceasefire is up, and you could die tomorrow. We're seeing lots of moves being made by regional powers, and I'd imagine that a lot of them are just going to go underappreciated. I mean, we talked a couple weeks ago about Venezuela literally saying that they want all the smoke well, no, okay, they didn't literally say that, but they basically said that they want all the smoke with Colombia in the event that there was a war between the U.S. and Venezuela. 
so uh, it's easy for a lot of these things to just go under the radar until they give us something huge. But I find that it is interesting to watch these things before they blow up because it gives you a lot to talk about. And I guess we'll just leave it there until next week when we have more to talk about. So, without further ado, that is all I have today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And the world, well, the world is changing, folks. Money moves are being made, and a lot of them we aren't even paying attention to. But the ones we can pay attention to, and the ones we do pay attention to, we're going to have fun watching those. And we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.